What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in. This is your host, Will Hall, and welcome to Madness Radio. Today, our focus is on madness, schizophrenia, and modern art. Our guest is Dr. Lewis Sass. He's a professor of clinical psychology at Rutgers University. Um, he's the author of two books, uh, Madness and Modernism, Insanity in the Light of Modern Art, Literature, and Thought, and The Paradoxes of Delusion, Wittgenstein, Schreber, and the Schizophrenic Mind. Um, he focuses on schizophrenia spectrum disorders from a phenomenological perspective, meaning from the experience of people themselves describing what they go through. And he's an author of many articles, including recently in the Schizophrenia Bulletin and the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Lewis, thank you so much for being on Madness Radio today with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Will. I think that your book, Madness and Modernism, and your your, your other book as well, Paradoxes of Delusion, are just um, tremendous, and I really recommend people to check out these books. I, I In some ways, I, I think I would compare you a little bit to R.D. Lang, um, the Scottish um, psychiatrist, um, in the sense that you're very, very interested in the actual experiences themselves that people go through who are diagnosed um, with schizophrenia and different uh, madness diagnoses. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of got interested in this work? Uh, well, I, too, was very uh, influenced by uh, R.D. Lang, or at least by one of his books, The Divided Self, which was a um, book that a lot of people read in the, um, in the late 60s when I was in college. And uh, that was one, one thing that inspired me. And I think that like a lot of people, a lot of, especially a lot of intellectual people, I found myself identifying with a lot of the things that were being described by Lang uh, as uh, characteristic of the schizoid and, and to some extent also the schizophrenic condition. I, could, I felt I could uh, uh, empathize and, uh, and, uh, and in fact that it had certain experiences of, of alienation and certain kinds of... Uh, problematic self-consciousness myself. So I, I felt that that was something that um, maybe I could make a contribution to. And I also had uh, a couple of good friends from, uh, from childhood, from high school at least, who uh, developed uh, uh, psychotic disorders, in one case uh, schizophrenia, and people that I knew you know, really very, very well and, and had a lot of respect for and um, was, was very interested in trying to understand what had happened to them. Uh, and I also found myself dissatisfied with a lot of what I what I read in psychiatry and clinical psychology and psychoanalysis. It just didn't seem to, to fit what I observed and um, and what I thought was happening uh, for them from their own subjective point of view. So the focus here is really on the experience of uh, of madness or schizophrenia. And I know that there's a lot of controversy about the lang- language and the use of different kinds of disorder language, and we're really trying to focus here on what it is that people go through themselves. So when, which I know has been a big um, interest of yours and it's sort of the central uh, kind of approach that you take is to really get into the details of what is it that people are, are going through. And the experiences that get labeled schizophrenia um, are actually very, very diverse and have a lot of different ins and outs to them. No two people kind of 
are the same, maybe we should talk a little bit about what it is that we're talking about when we say the schizophrenic mind or the schizophrenic experience. Well, first of all, since you mentioned the, the controversies around terminology, um, I certainly understand why people you know, don't want to be uh, saddled with a label that might be, be heard by a lot of other people as pejorative. And, um, and that's a, a real uh, important concern. On the other hand, I think when you think about the word schizophrenia, and uh, it's, it derives from, you know, uh, from, from Greek terms, which mean uh, split heart or split mind. And uh, I think that there are certain things about that term that actually capture fairly well what some of the experiences of schizophrenia are really like. In contrast with the, the term that it replaced, which, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, was the, um, the term that Emil Kraepelin had come up with, which was dementia precox, precocious dementia. And when Eugen Bloiler in the early 1900s came up with the word schizophrenia, it was because he wanted to, to uh, make it very clear that this was not a condition which was, uh, which was analogous to a demented condition. Um, that, that these were people who had a different way of experiencing, a different way of thinking, but not one that was necessarily uh, deficient uh, or lesser. So I, I, I'm not as, uh, as, as, as eager as some people are to, uh, to jettison the term schizophrenia. You, you ask what, what are the experiences, and uh, you also mention that the experiences can certainly be very diverse, and that's, that's certainly the truth. Um, at, the, um, at the beginning of my book, which you mentioned before, Madness and Modernism, I, I talk about the fact that the two things that you have to understand from the outset, if you want to think about what people call schizophrenia, is first of all the incredible diversity um, of the symptoms, which can sometimes involve things that seem actually antithetical to each other, like a patient can feel uh, at times in a so-called psychotic phase, that um, he or she is actually God controlling the whole universe, but the patient can also feel, or the person can also feel at other times, that he or she is more like a mechanism or a thing, uh, having no willpower and no control at all, just the opposite of a God. So these are, that's just one example of a kind of uh, paradoxical feature of the symptomatology of what we call schizophrenia. And the other thing, other than the heterogeneity, the incredible diversity of the symptoms that has to be kept in mind, is the difficulty that normal people have in comprehending it or empathizing with it. Uh, there was another important psychiatrist, I'm sure some of your readers have also heard about, named Carl Jaspers, uh, Carl Jaspers, we would say in English, but Carl Jaspers in German, who um, thought that the one really diagnostic feature <laughs> of a person with schizophrenia was that his, his or her experiences would seem incomprehensible to the normal person. That, I think, is really key because that sort of is the defining characteristic, in a sense, is, is strangeness, alienness, um, being other, isolation, not really understanding what the person is going through from the outside, and then from the inside, it's like you're completely isolated, everyone else in the world is, is, cannot be understood. Either, I guess, Jaspers said that schizophrenia was being ununderstandable, which I think is a really interesting way of, of talking about it. And that gets us into a little bit where we're headed with this, which is talking about 
modern art, which also, in a lot of ways, one of the defining characteristics is being ununderstandable. So I wanted to read um, a little section from a book uh, by Rene. People may know about it. It's called The Autobiography of a Schizophrenic Girl, and you quote it in uh, Madness and Modernism. Rene writes, For me, madness was definitely not a condition of illness. I did not believe that I was ill. It was rather a country opposed to reality, where reigned an implacable light, blinding, leaving no place for shadow, an immense space without boundary, limitless, flat, a mineral lunar country, cold as the wastes of the North Pole. In this stretching emptiness, all is unchangeable, immobile, congealed, crystallized. Objects are stage trappings placed here and there, geometric cubes without meaning. People turn weirdly about. They make gestures, movements without sense. They are phantoms whirling on an infinite plane, crushed by the pitiless electric light. And I, I am lost in it, isolated, cold, stripped, purposeless under the light. A wall of brass separates me from everybody and everything. This was it. This was madness. The enlightenment was the perception of unreality. Madness was finding oneself permanently in an all-embracing unreality. I called it the land of light because of the brilliant illumination, dazzling, astral, cold, and the state of extreme tension in which everything was, including myself. That's um, from Rene, The Autobiography of a Schizophrenic Girl. It's, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and that really resonates with a lot of my own, just completely sinking into this other world where everything seems to lose its sense of realness, people becoming... Um, it's it's kind of overwhelming to try and even talk about it, but I think that that's really the defining characteristic of what we're talking about is kind of slipping into another reality where things are just completely different and completely strange and alien. And I think that people who haven't had that sort of experience, whether in the psychotic form or in some other, I don't know, mystical or uh, other kind, will are very likely to want to interpret something like that either as a... Uh, in deficit terms, as a sort of uh, absence of some, you know, rational or higher capacities of mind, uh, or else as, as involving some kind of what you might call a Dionysian condition. When I say Dionysian, I'm referring to the god Dionysius, the god of wine and intoxication, because a lot of views about madness have sort of have tended to see madness as a lapsing out of rationality into a kind of overly passionate instinct-driven kind of state of mind, or perhaps into a state of mind that's similar to that of the young child who has not yet been civilized or, or has not yet learned how to use his or her rational faculties. I think that's very different, actually. That, that vision is very different from what Renee describes, because she describes a, a feeling not of um, being overwhelmed by desire, but of being uh, feeling just a tremendous sense of distance and separation from the world. It's not, you know, going into the dark caverns of the unconscious, but rather it's, a, uh, it's the land of light, as she describes it, in which things are almost too brightly lit, um, too precise, too clearly seen. And so these have been kind of the two characteristic approaches um, that um, medical science, uh, psychiatry, psychology have, have taken to the schizophrenic experience. One has been this idea of deficit, that you're just, your brain is, is not working properly, you lack the cognitive functioning to, to interpret the world or the cognitive functioning to express through language or to kind of keep your mind 
um, on track um, on the one hand so that deficit and on the other hand there's the idea of regression that we sort of um, see someone who's mad or who's schizophrenic as sinking into a childlike state or sinking into a primitive wild state um, leaving the kind of like um, higher civilized forms of thinking and expressing and regressing to something more primitive and that's where I think the romanticization comes in which you, you write about that you know even the sort of champions of madness and there have been many with anti-psychiatry and historically in poetry and, and art seeing the madman as a kind of like heroic rebel that itself is within this framework of regression and primitivization and, and, and going back to a childlike or a natural or a wild state and in your view is really something that's kind of beyond beyond both of that Yes, because I say that um, much more central to experience in, in schizophrenia is uh, what I call hyper-reflexivity and also alienation, which are experiences in which one sense, senses a, a, a sense of tremendous separation from, from one's own body, from other people, from the external world, and often with an uh, exaggerated kind of self-consciousness about one's body, about one's thinking, about words, about all kinds of things that uh, more normal individuals are unlikely to think about. Now that's very, that's very interesting, the idea of exaggerated self-consciousness, because in a sense, like if you exaggerate, if you go beyond an ordinary focus on yourself, you become more separate, and it also could be something, an experience of isolation and separation that's driven by fear, and that might be related to something that's very common that often people are overwhelmed by the outside or perhaps there's been some kind of violence or some kind of trauma that could be playing into this experience of becoming super focused on the self and the mind kind of turning inward this kind of solipsism that you that you talk about how could that manifest in in some of the experiences let's talk a little bit more of what are these madness experiences these schizophrenic experiences we talked about seeing the world as a a cold machine-like reality that's totally separate from you and that has no life to it. What are some of the other experiences that people uh, go through that reflect this idea of hyper-reflexivity, of excess of consciousness? Well, a, a very good example and, and one that medical psychiatry recognizes as very central is the experience of certain kinds of, of auditory hallucinations, which uh, turn out, especially in the kinds of auditory hallucinations that are most characteristic of schizophrenia seem to involve a kind of focal awareness of one's own thought processes, an awareness of the um, of what what could be called inner speech, um, which is almost normally in the in the more normal form of experience is is a kind of medium of experience, uh, which one doesn't so that one doesn't actually sort of see the words of a sentence or hear the words of a sentence. One is, in a certain sense, normally, in a normal case, just in inhabiting those, those words in order to think about something. But in the case of schizophrenic experiences, there can be a, an acute and direct awareness of the words themselves. And there can also be auditory hallucinations, very common in schizophrenia, that are an expression of this self-consciousness. So one of the typical kinds of auditory hallucinations that's common in this condition is hearing a voice which is commenting um, on your own behavior or your own thinking or your own feeling. 
Um, so you hear a voice saying something like, okay, now, so now you're thinking about that again, Louie. Okay, so now you're thinking about that again, Will, or something, you know, depending on who you are. It sounds very familiar because I definitely go through that when I'm not feeling well these days and I'm under a lot of, of stress. I start to hear voices, but especially when I was in the hospital and going through that period of my life, I had a lot of those experiences. And it's, it's interesting what you're saying because we recently had Jackie Dillon, who's the director of the Hearing Voices Network in England, and she talked about how a lot of times people in the process of working on hearing voices and um, learning how to cope and uh, deal with their voice hearing experiences, a lot of people do come to the realization that, hey, this is actually part of my inner speech. This is actually my own mind that I have for some reason split off or turned into something as I'm experiencing as coming from outside of me. Yes, absolutely. And another example, um, which I think is an interesting one, is that I think happens to a lot of people uh, with what we what's with so-called schizophrenia, is that they can become very aware of sort of the um, implicit uh, the things that we normally would just do implicitly and naturally. Like you might become aware of the strangeness of what it is to shake hands with another person. You know, sticking this lump of flesh out into the out into the space between two human bodies, and then moving it up and down simultaneously in contact with that other lump of flesh coming from the other person. How what a strange thing to do, um, as if that were natural. Well, of course, it doesn't seem strange to the normal person who grows up in a culture where you have the the custom of shaking hands. But if you are in this very self-conscious state, you begin to kind of scrutinize things that. Uh, wouldn't normally be attended to, and then those things become strange because they're scrutinized. But there's also, uh, as a result of that, there can be insight, I think, into, into dimensions of experience that, that uh, more normal people just don't notice that can be important dimensions of experience. So that you become aware of, uh, well, I had a friend, for example, who, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, a, a very brilliant guy, who would sit in a, uh, in a bar, this is when we were at college age, and he would sort of watch the people coming in um, and kind of see how they moved almost in the way that a student of animal behavior would see them move. He would notice the way the men uh, held their body in a certain kind of way to you know, impress other people or to intimidate or to be friendly. But he saw it as a... Uh, what they call an ethologist would see it. Um, and he was actually seeing things that were really happening. But as a result of seeing all of that, it was very difficult for him to uh, interact with the, the you know, men and women who were there in, in the bar because he was having such an, uh, an acute focal awareness of these kind of, um, I don't know, chimpanzee-like rules that can be present in, in human interaction even though we don't normally notice them. So you're saying something very intriguing, which is the idea that here we have a, a condition that an experience, um, a, a place that people go, that a lot of people um, go, and it's, it's very incomprehensible. There's so many different aspects to it. There's so many different things that people do when they get called schizophrenic or they get labeled with that diagnosis. And you're saying that there's a thread that runs through, which is the idea of extreme self-consciousness, that the person has somehow exaggerated or heightened their awareness of themselves and their surrounding to the point where they break with the customary ways that people are aware and understand their surroundings, and then they get into an, a very different kind of consciousness. 
Well, I, I don't know if I want to go quite so far as to say that that is always present, but um, I think it's extremely common, and I think it's a, a very central feature of what happens. We could we could talk a little bit later about um, some of the things that I've been writing about in the last few years, um, which would make hyperreflexivity part of a, a sort of larger conglomeration. Uh, but it's a very central feature of that. But I think before before we leave that. Um, uh, for the moment anyway, I, I wanted to mention another thing that is an interesting idea from a French psychoanalyst uh, who isn't much read in the mental health world, at least in the United States, uh, but is a very famous figure here. I'm in France this year for, on sabbatical, so I've been hearing about him a lot, and that is Jacques Lacan, spelled L-A-C-A-N, a very uh, well-known uh, French uh, psychoanalyst. And he said something, I'm going to say it in French and then I'll translate it, which I think is a very profound statement about uh, schizophrenia or perhaps psychosis more generally. And that's les non-dupes What that means is those who are not duped, les non-dupes air in French means um, to wander. And it also suggests the condition of being in error. And he says this about psychosis or schizophrenia. So the people who are not duped are lost. And the idea is that in psychosis, you can have a kind of awareness of things like the artificiality of many um, uh, societal customs, the sorts of things that I was talking about before, about how people interact with each other or shaking hands, that uh, means that you, if you're such this kind of person, are not fooled. Uh, you're not, as it were, taken in by the assumptions that everyone else is taken in by. But as a result of that, you wander lost in the world because in order to function in a, well, in what conventionally at least would be seen as an effective fashion, you need to believe in those illusions. You need to not have this kind of self-conscious awareness. At least you need to be able to put it in the back of your mind and not focus on that kind of self-conscious awareness in order to be able to get into the the, the dance, so to speak, or the you know the minuet of uh, of of conventional social interaction. I like that I like that sentence a lot because it brings together the fact that uh, a person with with psychosis or schizophrenia, in particular, can be both uh, have experiences of that do involve uh, an awareness of truth, but that we can also recognize that this is the very experience that can also be problematic for them. So let's break that down in terms of an example, because I, I know that sometimes when I was um, in really um, deep uh, states of madness that got me the diagnosis of schizophrenia, I would have clinical interviews with um, the residents in the, in the ward, and they would ask me questions, and I would my interpretation of what they were saying, like I would go into kind of like an echo effect, like I would almost really focus on the words that they had said too much and they, the words would kind of lose their meaning because I was listening to them really closely, it seemed. And then when I would speak, I would go off on this sort of train of thinking that would be called loose associations. And they would say, well, you have very disordered thinking. But my experience was that I was um, you know, making sense from inside somewhere or trying to make sense. And I think this is a, a common kind of symptom that it's called that people don't make sense that they start to speak but they're they're sort of like their speech wanders they have these loose associations they can't quite of kind of keep their 
um, thinking on track, how would that fit into what we're talking about in terms of hyper-reflexivity and the um, extreme self-consciousness? Sometimes what happens in those circumstances is that one is, is so aware of the, of the word that one uses. So one uses the word, say, 10, and um, instead of just not paying attention, not paying focal attention to the word itself, and thinking about the meaning that one wants to convey, one becomes aware of the word. And then one becomes aware, for example, of the fact that the word pen can mean at least two different things. It could be you know, the pen that you write with, or it could be a pig pen, or something like that, and perhaps other meanings as well. And as a consequence of that, you can be distracted into a, another line of thought. So you find yourself now talking about a farmyard rather than talking about the implements um, on your desk. It's because there was too much awareness, really, of, of language, which in a certain sense, instead of remaining transparent, as it does in, in normal practical discourse, begins to take on a kind of, you might say, opaque and ambiguous quality. So that's, I think, one, th- one thing that can happen. Sometimes this leads to forms of uh, ways of speaking that uh, psychiatrists refer to as having um, poverty of content of speech, meaning, which is a fancy, rather pretentious way of saying that the thing the other person said is empty of meaning. And I think often, at least some of the time, when that is said about patients with, about the speech of patients with schizophrenia, it's at times when the, when the patient was actually thinking about issues that are more abstract um, than, um, than would typically be the case. I remember one uh, person to whom, I think I talk about this in Madness and Modernism, to whom I gave a, um, a Rorschach test, an inkblot test, and he got into talking about the difference between black and white and the concept of contrast. Well, that's part of what is involved in an inkblot. You look at this inkblot on a card, and you see the ink on the white ground, and you see a bat or a woman or a car or whatever you see, but you're seeing it because of the black or the darker against the white, and that's an example of contrast. And so he, he got into talking about the concept in general of what, of, what, of what it is for something to contrast with something else. And it was uh, not that dissimilar to what uh, a lot of uh, philosophers might, might talk about. But it was the kind of thing that could easily be dismissed, I think um, mistakenly dismissed, as, um, as nothing but poverty of content of speech. It reminds me of when I was in the hospital and I, was, I think I was given like the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory or one of these... Um, one of these questionnaires where you have to answer all these questions, and I, I couldn't answer any of the questions. I got into a whole discussion about the sort of the nature of multiple choice tests and like the whole question of how it was framed, and eventually they just sort of removed the test from me, and that became you know, a, a symptom of what later became my schizophrenia diagnosis. So I can, I definitely can see that. If you're just tuning in, uh, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Louis Sass, who is professor of clinical psychology at Rutgers University, and we're talking about modern art and madness. Where this is heading with the idea of an excess of consciousness or a hyper-awareness 
is the connections that you make in your book uh, with uh, modern art. So let's talk, we've sort of gone over some of the characteristic features that people go through and experiences that get labeled um, schizophrenic. And um, modern art, like schizophrenia, is for a lot of people not understandable. Like, what this is really bizarre. What is going on? So tell us about the connection here. Well, I think one of the, um, uh, the reason that I chose um, modern or modernist and postmodernist art, meaning the art really of the 20th century primarily, as the thing to compare with schizophrenia is that, um, as, you, as you just mentioned, it, it too is, uh, can be very incomprehensible. And its incomprehensibility has, something, has a lot to do with the fact that uh, art in the 20th century became preoccupied with various kinds of hyper-reflexive issues. Um, I mean, to take a, 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 a very blatant example, you could take uh, the work of Marcel Duchamp, who really, instead of just producing paintings or sculptures or whatever it may be, was questioning the very was posing the question of what is art anyway. And so, when he took a urinal and said, "Let's let's call this a sculpture and put it in a um, in an art exhibition," he was not just producing a work of art, he was calling into question the whole convention of art itself. And you may or may not find the kinds of gestures of, of a Marcel Duchamp interesting or not. I mean, some people do, some people don't, but it's clear that he was up to something, that these were not just random uh, gestures on his part. And what he was up to was a, uh, involved a kind of meta-consciousness about art, uh, consciousness of of what art is rather than just the doing of art. And you have many examples uh, like that. I mean, the fact that if we talk about somewhat more conventional work, but still uh, avant-garde in its way, uh, works like abstract expressionism, where instead of accepting the conventions of uh, using paint to depict some objects like a landscape or a, a nude body or whatever it might be, the paint itself and the surface of the um, of the canvas become the actual focus of the work, and this is something that happens not only in the visual arts but also in the uh, in the literary arts. Uh, there's a French writer who's the clearest example of this, named Alain Robegrier, who's a member of the so-called Nouveau Roman, the new the new novel school, who instead of telling a story sort of always is always circling back on himself and, um, you know, talking about the narrator rather than letting the narrator just narrate. So you get all kinds of hyper-reflexive or meta-turns in 20th century art. And my argument is that if you look carefully at what occurs in these modernist and postmodernist forms of expression, you find very interesting structural parallels with things that occur in schizophrenia and which have been mistakenly understood in schizophrenia as indicating either regression to some infantile or Dionysian state or mere, mere um, disorganization and dementia, when in fact they often involve much more interesting, much more complex, um, although also problematic from the point of view of living a normal life, forms of awareness. So another example would be, say, the French surrealists who got into very fantastic and mad-looking visual representations of ordinary objects, and that's related to the schizophrenic experience in some way. Yes, I think the, the surrealists are 
are a good example. Actually, there's a, one of the Surrealists was a man named Yves Tongui, T-A-N-G-U-Y, I think is how you spell it, who uh, some of your listeners may have seen some of his paintings, who will give you a, a, a kind of a strange sort of moon-like landscape on which there will be all of these objects that don't quite look like anything recognizable. They're very much like the geometric cubes uh, without meaning that Rene uh, talks about in the autobiography of a schizophrenic girl. It's kind of like what the world would look like if you had lost all practical relationship with it. And if when you looked at a chair, it no longer looked like a place to sit that would serve a human function, but you just saw it now as a pure geometrical form. And in a way, I think that uh, Tongui was uh, evoking something very much like that in his paintings. And I guess people may have read the novel by uh, Jean-Paul Sardinazia, where which describes a ex- state of extreme alienation that could be compared to a schizophrenic um, experience. Yes, when he um, when his central character uh, Rocantin is sitting in the park and looks at the the roots of the chestnut tree, and he doesn't he kind of loses awareness of the fact that these are you know roots that are supposed to be there because they're part of the tree and we expect to see roots and he really looks at them you know intently they begin to take on a very strange almost hallucinatory look about them and i think that kind of almost excessive staring is something that plays at least a significant role in um in certain phases of schizophrenic experience so there's this parallel. Do you think that, that both the schizophrenic experience and modern art are reflecting of a broader cultural condition? Or how does, is it that modern artists maybe have access to these higher states of consciousness or, or higher states of, I don't know if I want to say higher states of consciousness, more like more extreme kinds of reflection and, and um, uh, self-consciousness, hyper-reflexivity that you call it, but without being overwhelmed by them, that they're able to kind of channel those um, states. And, and perhaps something is a related question, is it seems like this might explain why you get madness and genius often so closely related, that the people who are making surrealist paintings and Dadaist poetry and um, sculptural installations like Duchamp may, are also extremely eccentric, weird people who aren't playing by the rules of conventional society. Well, sometimes they are. Sometimes I think they're, like you describe, weird people who aren't playing by the conventional rules. A good example of that would be Antonin Artaud, who was such an important influence on um, avant-garde theater in the 20th century and who clearly was uh, you know, schizophrenic, if that word has any meaning. Uh, at least he had the characteristics that we call, uh, tend to call schizophrenia. But I think there are other people, like perhaps um, Robe Grier may have been an example, who were um, actually um, rather uh, certainly capable of leading a very conventional life and capable of, of the usual um, standard kind of Machiavellian manipulations of the art market and so on. So I think that it, it's some, I think there is an affinity between um, schizophrenia and, uh, and creativity in, uh, of the modernist and postmodernist form. But I don't, wouldn't want to, uh, to identify them too closely. I, 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 I think there's a, a structural parallelism here um, in that the hyperreflexivity that is very central to many people with so-called schizophrenia is structurally at least analogous to what goes on in um, many uh, 
trends in modernist and postmodernist art. Now we could say, well, why is there that uh, structural parallel? And I, in my book, Madison Modernism, uh, deal with this question at some length and try to treat it very, very uh, uh, carefully. Because and now, now I'm going to say something that I'm not saying is necessarily true, but it could be true. It could be the case. It's conceivable that there is some kind of um, neurological, neurobiological abnormality. I did not say deficit, but abnormality that's characteristic of people with schizophrenia that happens to have as one of its consequences uh, a propensity toward hyperreflexivity, toward hyper-self-consciousness. And it could be that that's uh, primarily neurobiologically based, this, this um, uh, unusual um, condition. And that in, in the 20th century arts, there is a, a, a quite different reason for hyperreflexivity, something having more to do with the, um, the inherent um, uh, trends of, uh, of historical development whereby artists become more and more uh, aware of art uh, and, and, and think about it in a, in a kind of, in, in, in part in response to philosophical developments where people begin questioning the field of aesthetics develops, which of course wasn't always there, and becomes more and more prominent, and artists begin thinking about art, and then they begin doing art that um, is, more, is more self-conscious, and that there happens to be a parallel but the causes of this hyperreflexivity in the two domains is different. That's at least logically possible. It seems like there could also be the idea that, um, say, there's a trait or a characteristic that some people have, um, say, sensitivity or creativity or openness or just a propensity towards a certain kind of reflexivity, a certain kind of self-consciousness that you're talking about, and then all these different social, cultural, environmental factors intervene so that one person is in a situation where they're able to maybe channel that into creating art or being a, a different kind of unusual, distinctive individual in the world, whereas other people end up, for whatever intervening reasons, end up channeled into more of a deterioration and isolation and then eventually being in this role of the mental patient or the mad person or the schizophrenic, that, that there may very well be the similar kinds of talents or characteristics in both the genius and the madman, but that it's about how their lives played out, maybe. I mean, this is all speculation. There's no way we can you know, confirm this. I think what you're saying is, abs- is, is extremely plausible as well, and, is, and is, it, may be tr- it may be that all, a lot of different explanations are kind of simultaneously true. Um, it's interesting that in um, in the 20th century there are quite a few people of um, you know really profound cultural importance who were really very um, extremely schizoid um, to the point of uh, being you know nearly psychotic or who were actually sufferers from schizophrenia. I mean, if you think about theater, for example, in the 20th century, some of the major um, innovators are um, Alfred Jarry. Who uh, who wrote the uh, the first absurdist play uh, Ubu Hua, and also Antonine Artaud, who was um, the author of the theater and its double, and these are really absolutely you know people of monumental importance for um, avant-garde theater, and both of them were uh, you know very in the case of Jarry I think he was uh, not diagnosed but 
if you read about his life, it seems like he was uh, a very schizophrenic-like person. And Artaud um, really, really was a sufferer um, from psychosis much of his life and spent his last 10 years in, in asylums. And these were really brilliant, genius people. Um, but if you look earlier than the 20th century, it's harder to find um, as many examples of people who were schizophrenic or schizophrenia-like who had as much influence. And that may be because the kind of art that became prominent in the 20th century with its hyper self-consciousness and hyper-reflexivity was the kind of art that people with a uh, schizophrenia-like tendency could contribute to. Back in, say, 1800, at the time of, early, in the early 1800s, the time of Romanticism, the sort of art that was, um, was popular, say, in Romantic poetry, was a kind of art in which was more, in a way, manic or hypomanic-like. The, um, the role of emotionality was much more important um, rather than the, um, the sense of alienation and, um, and self-consciousness. So, so, so it may be that the, you know, that the link between genius and creativity, excuse me, between, between madness and creativity or between mental abnormality and creativity is something that really has to be seen in a historical context. kind of depends what you mean by creativity. The creativity of Lord Byron is very different from the creativity of, uh, of Samuel Beckett. And uh, why would we expect that the same kinds of mental abnormalities or mental disorders would give rise to both kinds of creativity? So it's interesting. The, um, there's a question of why is it in the 20th century certain kinds of art gets recognized as valuable and interesting? And one of the points that you make is that our, our culture is in some ways has a kind of schizophrenic quality to it. You describe it as... Um, as there's a focus on really, really concrete, objective things out there, like the material world, and then also a real focus on the subjective experience. And we see this sort of like in the fantasy world of advertising and consumerism, and then the sort of objective, go out there and do things in concrete and, and accomplishing things. And so, is, so there's some kind of way in which the culture itself parallels this experience. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think I think so. I think that there's a a sort of hyper objectivism and you know people are in a way inclined to think of them or at least they're open to the idea that uh, maybe I'm nothing but my brain maybe you know all I really am is my neuron firing I mean at least that's an idea I'm not saying that everyone accepts that now but it's an idea that that, that seems possible and perhaps plausible in a way that it wouldn't have a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago and at the same time we also have a tremendous subjectivism in which we um, we're inclined to think of you know the the world as sort of being our world and um, and different people different live in different worlds because their experiences are different. So we have the co combination of a kind of extreme objectivism and a kind of extreme subjectivism, which may have some parallels with um, things we see in uh, in uh, in schizophrenia. I mean, I think I think I mentioned in my book uh, the example of Andy Warhol, um, because he's a fascinating figure who, you know, he once said, I want to be a machine, and he referred to his studio as the factory, and he, um, he in a way, gives us a vision of the world in which, um, you know, there is no sort of inner, inner life. There's just, you know, there are just things like photographic images, and, um, and at the same time, it's a kind of objectivized world, 
the world of the factory and the machine. And yet, on the other hand, it's a world of total fantasy in which you feel like, well, there is no real Jackie Onassis. There's only the image that we have of Jackie Onassis and the image that we have of the images of Jackie Onassis. So you go back and forth between this concretism, this mechanism, and this extreme subjectivism. And I think that back and forth, um, which I'm talking about an artist, but it's an artist who's a very prototypical one, says something about our culture. And what it says about the culture has some parallels with, with things that you also see in, in, in schizophrenic experience. I'm curious what your thoughts are about um, the place of mystical experience or religious experience in all this, because that's also a very mysterious um, thread that goes between people who are recognized as having religious talents or abilities as leaders or prophets or um, uh, having genuine connections with spirit and um, people who are, who are mad or who are seen as manic or schizophrenic or who are in hospitals. How do you think your sort of framework of this idea of an excess of consciousness or an excess of of uh, self-consciousness, how does that fit into per- perceptions of the mystical or the spiritual? Well, that's a very tough question, and I, I, don't, I don't know quite what I think about that, because I think that there are features of mystical experience that seem quite, quite similar to, to schizophrenia in some ways, but other features that seem rather different. I mean, the, the typical mystical experience that's you know, described sort of classically is an experience of a kind of um, blissful fusion with the world, um, a sense of that being at one with the world, which is something that I think can happen sometimes in schizophrenic experience. But certainly, if you read accounts and talk to people who've, who've suffered from schizophrenia, or what we call schizophrenia, um, they often describe something which is a little bit different from that, which is, first of all, um, it's more laced with, um, with anxiety and with a kind of sort of electric intensity that can be both sort of invigorating but kind of alienating and frightening at the same time. Um, and uh, there's often a sense of tremendous separateness, um, at least um, framing the perhaps more brief, uh, briefly experienced experiences of fusion. So I, 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 I'm not really sure what to say about that. I think that mysticism is something that um, has some affinities, but it's not quite identical with, with what happens in, in schizophrenia. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't be something that's identical. It just seems that there's a mysterious connection. A lot of people who come through their experiences, especially that get labeled manic or these kind of high-energy expanded states, you know, they're really left with, how do I piece all this together? How do I sort of pull apart the anxiety, trauma, suffering, negative side from the authentic spiritual, mystical component to it? That's something I've been <laughs> been working with for, for many years, how to sort of um, go back into those states without getting overwhelmed by them and to take from them what's what's useful and positive and not romanticize the side that is difficult or isolating or um, plunging you down into a separate kind of isolated reality. Lewis, I'm, I'm really interested also in what do you think are the implications of your work if um, medical science and psychiatry and mental health were to take this seriously, the approach that you're taking, um, how would we do things differently? What would we be looking at in terms of new directions in, um, in research and study and also how we take care of people? I think the whole 
recognition of the role of hyperreflexivity should sound a cautionary note about what might happen with certain kinds of, um, say, cognitive behavioral treatments that might run the risk of exacerbating, of um, pathologically exaggerating self-consciousness of the patient by um, being, in a certain sense, maybe somewhat too intellectual that might encourage a kind of introspection on the part of the patient that uh, could have actually um, uh, deleterious effects in the sense that it might play in to the hyperreflexivity that's already too exaggerated. But I think it's difficult to, to I think this is a, a broad uh, kind of philosophical perspective that's, that doesn't have um, simplistic, impl- simple implications because despite what I just said about the possible dangers of um, encouraging introspection, I think it's also possible that appropriate kinds of introspection uh, with the patient in which the therapist and the patient both recognize the role of something like hyperreflexivity can also, if it's done in a sensitive way, can also be helpful to the patient. Um, I've uh, treated patients in the past who who, um, really felt that the whole idea that they were um, suffering from a mental disorder was didn't make much sense to them because the way in which that mental disorders were described by their people who were treating them was so different from what their experience was but once they understood these notions about hyperreflexivity and self disturbance they were able to kind of get a better grip on what was really troubling them and what kinds of hyperreflexive processes for example led them into difficulty and that helped them learn how to um you know, you know, move in other directions that were more, uh, more functional for them. One of the things that's remarkable about your book is that so much of the experiences that get called schizophrenia that are just completely mysterious and unintelligible start to make a little bit more sense. Do you think that's one of the promises of your phenomenological approach and looking at this idea of hyperreflexivity that that what people go through might start to be a little bit more understandable and therefore we can start to embrace people more as people rather than see them as so strange and bizarre and other? Yes, I think that's, that's um, certainly one of, the, um, one of the goals I would have for my approach. But I would want to uh, add a qualification there that I, 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 I think it's important to understand um, people suffering from what we call schizophrenia as being people, but I think we also need to understand what it is that's, um, that, that is different about them. And uh, I think we have to do that in a way which is both sensitive and um, that recognizes the, uh, the potential insights that may be present in, in, the, in, in, their, in their modes of experience, but that also doesn't kind of glorify it. Um, that, doesn't, that also recognizes the the great difficulties that such people can experience. So I think it's a matter of walking a very fine line uh, in which one, um, one exercises uh, empathy, uh, sympathetic empathy, without the kind of romanticizing that I think neglects the, the suffering that these experiences can really involve. Lewis, tell us about your work now. I know you're um, working on a book about Antonin Artaud, and also give us uh, contact information if people want to get in touch with you. Well, I've been, I've been uh, since the time that uh, Madness and Modernism came out, which was in 1992, I've been writing uh, lots of articles about schizophrenia, including 
among other topics, uh, articles on the so-called negative symptoms of schizophrenia, articles on um, abnormalities of emotion or affect in schizophrenia. I uh, hope in the next couple of years to put together what I've written since Madness and Modernism into a new book on schizophrenia. Meanwhile, I'm also working on a number of figures in the uh, 20th century who had what I call extreme self-projects, that is, projects of trying to create themselves in um, in very unusual, um, unconventional ways. And I'm working particularly now on Antonin Artaud, who is a uh, famous French uh, writer on theater, and he was also an actor and a poet and an essayist who spent the last 10 years of his life uh, in various asylums in France. And if people want to reach you, an email address? My contact information, my, I can give you my email, which is lsass, that's lsass, at rci.rutgers.edu. Louis Sass, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Well, thank you very much, Will. It was a real pleasure talking with you. You've been listening to an interview with Louis Sass. He is a professor of clinical psychology at Rutgers University. He's the author of two books, uh, Madness and Modernism, Insanity in the Light of Modern Art, Literature, and Thought, and The Paradoxes of Delusion, Wittgenstein, Schreber, and the Schizophrenic Mind. You can reach him via email at lsass, L-S-A-S-S, at rci.rutgers.edu. That's all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD, Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities, freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness radio to help get us broadcast on a station near you or if you just want to share what's in your head contact radio at madnessradio.net